Welcome, everybody, to the Tucson Hockey Podcast. My name is Ryan Dijo. I'm the coaching director for the Tucson Junior Roadrunners. And today's episode is sponsored by Altitude Home Loans and a good friend of the program, Danny Plattner, who runs the Adult League. If you've met Danny, he is a loan officer with Altitude Home Loans. And if anyone's looking to get a mortgage or refinance, you can go directly to dannyplattner2ts.com. Dannyplattner.com. I know I recently bought a new home and Danny was my mortgage officer with Altitude. And the best compliment I can give is when I went to the title company, it was the lowest mortgage rate they had seen. And Danny in the Adult League has been a good friend of the program. So anybody looking for that, look for Altitude Home Loans and specifically dannyplattner.com. All right. Joining us today is the senior writer for NHL.com. He's also the host of the NHL at the Rink podcast, a frequent contributor to NHL Network, but most importantly, because this is the Tucson Hockey Podcast, a very proud Wildcat, Dan Rosen, joins us today. Dan, thank you for joining us on the podcast. And, and Ryan, like, I'm happy to be here. And of all the things you just said there, the one that made, had the most meaning to me in terms of life-wise and what it means to me and how I got where I am right now is being a proud Wildcat. I am a very proud Wildcat. Went there from 96 to 2000, graduated with a degree in journalism in 2000, and uh, it was an incredible experience in my life, and one I never forget. I'm a proud Wildcat and a huge Wildcat fan. Well, let's start there. Talk about your journey a little bit, about a little bit where you grew up, um, some of your interest in sports early on, and what led you to make a an excellent decision coming to the University of Arizona. <laughs> and it was an excellent decision, absolutely. Uh, you know what it is? Uh, I was a sophomore in high school, and my brother was in college. He was at Indiana University, and my parents were just like, let's go on a little trip. I had a, you know, a mini-day break in, uh, here in North Jersey where I live. I grew up in Fairlawn, New Jersey. I live in Fairlawn, New Jersey. We're about 10 miles outside of New York City. And, you know, I think it was a, a February break. We get a winter break in February. So we went on a vacation out there to get some warm weather. And we went to Scottsdale in the Phoenix area. And I thought it was great. I'd never been out there before. And, you know, we toured around uh, Arizona State University in Tempe. And I was like, oh, this is pretty cool, right? I would love to check out Tucson and the University of Arizona. Just because, you know, hey, at that point, you're not really thinking about colleges. But you're like, oh, this would be really cool. Uh, so the next year, same time, we went back and this time we went to Tucson and toured around the University of Arizona campus and I said, well, this is way better than Arizona State. And it still is, by the way. Uh, everything about it is better than Arizona State. Uh, and uh, don't argue with me on it. I'm right. Um, <laughs> and I just fell in love with it. I thought it was awesome. And the, the warm weather and just the idea of a big time school with big time athletics. And that's what I was looking for because I knew I wanted to work in sports. I just didn't know in what capacity. So I figured you got to go to a place that's got big time sports to really get involved. It's a big place, but you make it your small community. And so that's what I did. I had all these friends of mine who were, you know, going to cold weather schools and they would be asking me, like, why are you picking there? Why are you going to the University of Arizona so far away? And I'm looking at them like, well, why are you going to SUNY all the like, what, what are you getting out of that, you know? Go to the cold-weather small school, okay, enjoy it, and you can drive home, fantastic, but I can fly home, and for me, when you go to college, it wasn't about coming home, it was about being in college, so uh, my brother went to a big-time school in Indiana, and so I wanted to do the same, and I applied, got in, and uh, we say the rest is history, and it, it was an amazing four years, uh, I wouldn't trade it for anything. 
And as someone like me who went to Niagara University, which is, as Grandpa to Joe would say, colder than a well digger's backside, and it snowed <laughs> from middle of October to <laughs> to Easter, both years I was there. <laughs> I don't know, man. I don't know why anybody wants that unless you just love the cold weather. But you know, for me, it was like we had a blizzard too. Uh, blizzard in '96. Um, it was I think it was January '96, and we got like uh, 36 inches of snow or something like that. I don't remember the morning it happened. I woke up. And I couldn't open. We couldn't open the front door because the the, the snow banks were were up, you know up. And at that point, I was just like, all right, enough of this. I'm going to Arizona, and I'm going to enjoy this warm weather. And I did spend a few summers there, and everybody's like, oh, it's so hot. I'm like, yeah, it is hot. So what? You know, we have air conditioning, hopefully. Um, I actually had a car without air conditioning for one summer, so that was interesting. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I was a warm-weather guy for college. Now, I moved back into the cold-weather area, the North Jersey area. It's not like freezing cold all the time, but... I moved back because I wanted to work in the New York market, but uh, for college, man, that was that was the place for me. I remember that. I'm from Northeast Ohio in the snow belt. 96, I remember watching TV when they used to flash the time and the weather, at, well, just the temperature, and it was negative yeah. 27 one day, and that was yeah. without wind chill. Yeah. And I, I, look, I, I mean, I got friends throughout Canada, too, through the job that I have. I ask them all the time, like, I'm sure you love Edmonton. I'm sure you love Winnipeg, but I mean, why did you choose to live there? It's so cold. But no, it's where it's where home, right? I mean, for me, I went out to Arizona and I spent four years there, and I thought I might stay, uh, but then I found myself right after I graduated. I find myself like I need to move on. I need something different. I need to move away from the school setting. And if I figured if I stayed in Tucson for too long, that I don't know that I would have been able to do that. And I wanted to work in the New York market, and I was able, fortunate enough, to get a job at the Herald News in North Jersey, uh, which, you know, a local paper from where I grew up. And I was like, that's it. I'm going back. I want to work in the New York market. So I moved back. Home is where the heart is, as they say, right? But Arizona will always have, will always forever be something, you know, warm in my heart, so to say. And we have hockey families from Edmonton area, from the Winnipeg area here yeah. in Tucson now. And uh, I think they would wholeheartedly agree. <laughs> so, uh, talk a little a little bit more about your U of A time here. You were a writer and an editor for the Daily Wildcat. Yeah, so I started um, the so- second semester sophomore year. I realized, you know what, maybe this is the avenue that I want to take uh, because I wanted to be involved. I wanted to be on the inside, so to speak. And I, I wanted to 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 find my way in, into the sports world. And, and I knew I had a passion for writing. And I knew I had a passion for attending games and talking to people, and I and I knew I could do it. So I started out um, the second semester sophomore year, and I ended up covering uh, slow, slowly working my way into it. I covered the club rugby team and the club men's lacrosse team at Arizona, and I played lacrosse in high school, so I knew that game. Actually, one of the guys on the team at the time I played with in high school, which was very odd. I didn't realize it until I, you know, went there. I was like, oh my goodness, you know. Rugby I covered. I didn't know anything about the sport. Um, and I covered the entire season without knowing anything about the sport. I probably still couldn't tell you anything about the sport, but I knew about the people. And I could get into the, the telling the stories of the people, and through that, I could tell the stories of the games. And that's where I really developed the passion to do it. I was a journalism major, and then 
through my last two years at Arizona, I covered the men's basketball team, went to the NCAA tournament. I covered the football team when they were 12 and 1 and went to the Holiday Bowl with Chris McAllister and Dennis North, uh, Ortiz Jenkins. That was a great team. Maybe the best team that Arizona ever had in 98. I covered that team for Daily Wildcat. Uh, the baseball team, I was a sports editor. Uh, I did some Ice Cats, but I really didn't do a ton of Ice Cats. I was able to attend Ice Cats games. Um, but that's really where I developed my passion for. You know, the media business for being a writer, reporter, and, uh, yeah, I mean, the Arizona Day to Wildcat, you didn't get any credits for it, um, but it was where you learned the most. That, like, learning on the job, sitting at press row at a basketball game next to the professionals, learning from them and following them and, and being one of them, um, really prepared me for when I got out of school and, uh, started working in the real world. Well, let's talk, I mean, that's a, as good of a heyday in U of A sports history as I think we've ever had. Yeah. And, uh, well, especially main term, mainstream in terms of football and basketball. Talk a little bit about, uh, we just lost Coach Olson recently, a, a Tucson staple, not only a U of A staple, but, I mean, this is a college town. It's a different kind of college town, but it's definitely a U of A town here. And Lute Olson's probably the biggest figure we have in Tucson. Talk about your interactions with him during those years. Yeah, well, first off, I was a freshman. When Arizona won the national championship in '97, and that was—I mean, we—I peaked. I mean, that was the best night of my college life when they won, and I was—I was just a freshman, you know, in early April of 1997, and it was unbelievable to be there. Anybody that was there at the time, um, especially if you were in school at the time, I mean, just the the atmosphere, going out on the court, partying, celebrating, and just—you know—you were in the national spotlight, and it was your school, your team, and I remember I watched the game. With 30 or 40 people in one apartment. And we were, but when Ma Salmon was hitting free throws, we, I mean, we were body surfing people. It was, it was incredible. Um, and then when I covered the basketball team, uh, two years later, I, I really, you know, I, I got to sit down and, and talk with, with Coach Olson and be in press conferences with Coach Olson. And I remember specifically, I remember it vividly that we set up a meeting to be in his office to do a story. And I, I went to his office at McHale Center, and I don't, he, he didn't know this, you know, but he was the first superstar I ever covered. And like you said, I mean, he meant, he meant and means everything to that community, to that school. So he was the first huge name in the national scale that I covered and got to know a little bit. And he taught me so much about the business in terms of, the reporter uh, source relationship. He, without even realizing, because he wasn't, he challenged. I had to ask good questions to get good answers. I had to dig a little bit. I had to come prepared uh, when, when I, you know, spoke to him. Because, you know, I mean, if you if you if you don't, what good are you? Then you then you kind of lose your edge, and and, and it's not going to be taken seriously. You're not going to get the stuff you want. You're not going to be able to tell the stories that you need to tell. Sitting in his office that day, I'll never forget, I was a college student, and here I'm sitting in Lou Olson's office asking him questions, and, you know, just being engaged with him allowed me to understand what this reporter-source relationship is, and through that course of that season, I, I really learned a lot from doing it. Same, same with Dick Tony when he was the football coach, but more so with Olson, just because of the fact that he was such a legendary name at the time, and, and, and a national champion at the time, so... Uh, I never had a chance to thank him, but he was one of those guys that really, you know, 
allowed me to, to learn on the job without even realizing that he was doing it. No, I, I appreciate you sharing that. And even though this is the hockey podcast, it's the Tucson hockey podcast. So, and given that we were talking about a little bit with Zach Clark, another proud wildcat who used to host the ESPN 1490 drive time mm-hmm. radio show. Yeah. And so uh, switching gears, you know, uh, talking about Coach O, obviously you can go on a long time about him and his legacy in Tucson, but talk a little bit about your experience just going to Ice Cat games and kind of how your appreciation or memories have evolved now that you've had this career in hockey and you've covered up to and including a couple of Stanley Cup game sevens. Yeah, you know what the thing is? Like anytime you get a good rivalry game and you get a good atmosphere, the hockey itself is better. So the Ice Cats are not peak level of hockey. We know that. Like I cover that now. The NHL is the best league in the world. The Ice Cats are club hockey, but it was good. I mean, it's fast paced. It was good hockey, and, and, and you can appreciate that. But then when you're inside the TCC and they're playing the Arizona, they're playing Arizona State, and that rivalry and the fans, you know, the buzz in the building, and it carries over onto the ice. I'll never forget those games. Those were true passionate rivalry games, and it was so fun to be in the building for those games. It was just a great atmosphere in general to go to the Ice Cats games and, and, and be charged up for some hockey in Tucson, which, you, you know, you have to drive to Phoenix to get it. Coyotes, you know, at the time, and who were just brand new, really, and, and there at the time, and they, they had some good players, they had Jeremy Monik and Keith Kachuk and, and a few others, but it, it, it was, you know, the, those Ice Cats, Ice Devils games, those, those, they were so much fun to be be around and be a part of. And like I said, I was working for the Arizona Daily Wildcat, but I didn't really cover the Ice Cats, so I was able to go to those games as, as a fan, you know, be be you know be the passionate person that I wanted to be as a fan. And, and uh, it, it was just so much fun to be there, and, and it's just it, it really made those games feel so much bigger than they than they really were. I mean, they were still small community games, small college, you know, college club hockey games. But being in that arena with that passion, it made them feel like you were at such a big event. And uh, it, to me, it's it's similar on a smaller scale, obviously, to what a standing final game is or a rivalry game in the NHL is in any place because. That passion leads onto the ice. And again, I've been, well, I've told the story before. My first night in Tucson was the last U of A ASU game, one February. And I don't think either team was going to uh, the tournament. So I'm surprised there was enough players on the roster to finish the game too. So very kind of old school hockey. And I think that's something that the fans here, especially long-term Wildcat fans that have been going to these games, they really get some of that old-school hockey that they, they kind of lament that they don't see on television as, as much, especially with the fighting part. But So let's change gears a little bit. So talk about how your career kind of got started and you're writing at uh, the Bergen County Record in New Jersey and talk about what you were covering there and how it transitioned or how you were able to kind of catch the eye of the NHL and then start working for the NHL. Yeah, so how it started was I told you I got that job at the Herald News, which is in North Jersey. It was a small sister paper to the, to the Bergen Record, uh, owned by the same company. What they did, I was kind of high school sports, and they merged um, local sports. Yes, so high school sports. If you can hear my dog barking, by the way, it's because the mailman's here. Um, <laughs> he, he's just excited for U of A talk as well, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, there it is. There it is. Um, look, I, so... 
they merged high school sports desk, and that's what I was doing. So it got me the opportunity to work in a bigger newsroom with a bigger paper at the record. We transferred. I moved over there. Um, and that really was the first break that I got. And then I was, I mean, it was the 2002-2003 season. I was covering high school sports. They needed somebody to go out and cover devil's practice. And they knew that I knew the game. So they asked me to go do it. And I, did a, I remember I did a story on Scott Gomez. And the editor was like, hey, this is pretty good. If we need you more, we'll do more. And I was like, absolutely. This is great. You know, let me do it. I wanted to break in pro sports. It, it, I didn't know if it was going to be hockey or basketball or baseball or football. But I needed a break to cover pro sports. And that was it for me. And then in 2003, the Devils go to the playoffs and they needed somebody to do sidebars, uh, you know, to be the second person there. The main reporter at the time covering the Devils was Tom Belitti, who ironically I work with now. He's our Washington-based uh, staff writer for NHL.com. And I thought I was just going to cover some home games in the playoffs and whatnot. Well, I covered home games. I went to Boston. I covered more home games. I went to Tampa. I covered more home games. Then I went to Ottawa in the conference final. I covered more home games. Then I went to Anaheim in the standing final. That was going to win the standing final. Right? And it's just like, whoa, okay, I got this four rounds of an unbelievable experience. And the people that hired me at the NHL four years later were some of the people I met during that, that run of 2003. Um, after that, I covered some more hockey, some Rangers, did some Devils, and whatnot. And then I got the job you know, at the NHL. They were hiring in, in 06. I interviewed, didn't get it. And then in 07, I was able to get it at the NHL. And I've been there ever since, in October of 2007. And, and it's... Uh, We've changed, we've added, we've changed with the mediums, we've changed with the times, you know, with, with social media and with podcasts and, and you know, whatever it may be. But uh, it, it's been an incredible run. But that's where it got started. I mean, it's, it's funny how it works out. Sometimes you never know where it's going to start. And it ends up starting for me meeting some people on a run I never expected. And especially for someone who grew up as a Devils fan. And, um, yeah, I did. I did. I, I, I was a Devils fan. Growing up, I mean, they were my team. I grew up in North Jersey. And I remember in 1988, I was 10 years old. They won, you know, they, they go to the playoffs for the first time. Uh, guys like Ken Danico and John McLean, those type of that team, Sean Burke. I mean, that was, that was a heck of a team. And then in 95, they went to the top with Brodeur. And I was still a Devils fan in 2000 when they won it. I was, in, I was actually in Arizona at the time. And I remember, like, nobody was watching the games except I was. So I was watching the games in the Stanley Cup final by myself, but you know I was all into it. And then once I started covering hockey, you lose that. You know, it, like it just kind of goes away, and you start. And now, you know, I haven't even thought about being a Devils fan, in, you know, in a long time. I grew, you know, I now go to games and I root for myself. Uh, I root for good stories. I root for um, good angles, um, exciting games, exciting atmospheres. And then when it gets to the playoffs, you root for no overtime. Overtime hockey is great, except if you're writing a game story. I'm sure. And, you know, that 2003 final, what, a, what an excellent and compelling final with the Devils in Anaheim. It goes to seven games. You have the Scott Stevens-Paul Correa hit where he came back to life. Oh, man. Um, and <laughs> I, what I remember, too, is John Sebastian Jaguar, uh, who, like – Ron Hextall, I believe in 87, were losing goaltenders who won the Conn Smythe. And, well, and, and, and I say that John Sebastian Jaguar was the inspiration for the Geico Walrus in the Net commercial because I, I can't ever remember a goalie looking so big in there with those pads he had that year. 
Bart Snow had huge pads too. Yes, 100%. Yeah, he had gigantic pads. And that was the funny thing is Marty Brodeur on the other on the other side didn't. He never had big pads. Yet he was, in my estimation, the best goalie to play. Um, he, he his pads were always tiny. He, he took off his jersey. He, he took off his jersey. He had these like skimpy shoulder pads that were like so they get the puck in him. Doesn't that hurt? And maybe it did, maybe it didn't. But you know, he never had the big pads. Jaguar definitely did. But that was a compelling final. Uh, you mentioned the hit. Stevens on Korea. Korea's the breath into the visor coming back, basically coming back to life uh, after that hit. We won't see that hit in the NHL today. Those hits are, are long gone, but they were allowed back then. Um, and then you had the, you know, the first time that I ever heard anybody refer to, you know, the, the game of hockey as being a greasy game. That was Mike Babcock, who was coaching the Anaheim Ducks at the time. And he called him, you got to play a greasy game, which means, you know, battle, hard work. Owners, be in front of the net, you know, get you know, get yourself dirty, so to speak. I never heard greasy before that. Now we hear it almost regularly, I think, in the NHL. Uh, yeah, it, it was it was a compelling series. There's no question about it. A seven game series. I remember game seven. I ended up writing two sidebars. Uh, a story on Ken Danico, who was playing his last game, and a story on the Niedermeyer brothers. And I basically wrote them and had to send both of them. At the final buzzer of what was a three to nothing Devils win, right? And a couple of goals from Mike Rupp, and a quick shout out to my brother. He's a he's a St. Edwards in Lakewood, Ohio graduate, just like my brother is. So, little little shout out, little shout out to my brother. And now on the NHL network, he's doing a heck of a job. Mike was great, good dude, frequent contributor. And just talking about the Devils for a little bit more. Now, you just had on one of your recent episodes, you had Eddie Olchik on talking about Doc Emmerich. And you had Doc Emmerich on your podcast. And some of yeah. you, like you, who grew up a Devils fan and worked for the NHL, uh, you told a good story about uh, Doc, uh, you know, during your podcast. But just talk a little bit here on, on our pod about just some of your memories and some of the interactions you had with Doc Emmerich and Doc Emmerich, the person. He, he may be the nicest man on the I'll just start there. Um, I don't think Doc Emmerich has a bad day. If he does, uh, he won't show it. Um, he was always friendly to everybody who was, you know, he is, I should say, just because he's a broadcaster. Uh, he is always friendly to everybody who talks to him. And that was one of the best things about Doc is whenever I looked forward to seeing the arena, because I knew when I talked to Doc that for those moments where we were chatting, you know, I was the most important person to him, and and, and that's how he makes you feel. Uh, it's it's a it's really you know wonderful quality for a person to have. Um, obviously, a terrific broadcaster. Uh, one of the things that Doc always said to me, and I would see him obviously at all the big events, uh, playoffs, Cup final, Wednesday night hockey, you know, and wherever the arena was that we you know was in, um, you know, outdoor games, whatever it may be. He would always say to me, "Damn." You believe they let us in for free. Isn't that the best? And he's right. And it really puts everything into perspective. They do. We're media. We're there to work. Uh, we have a job to do, but they let us in for free. And don't lose perspective of that. And Doc never did. Uh, but I was covering high school sports at the time for the Bergen Record. I mean, this was probably 2005, 2006, maybe in that neighborhood. And I was going to a, a local rink to cover some Friday night games. I walk into the rink. And there's Doc Emmerich. And I'm looking at him. What are you doing here? Are you kidding me? And he knew uh, a 
play a family of one of the players on one of the local, you know, local high school teams that was playing, and, and so he he told them he would come to a game, and he did. And there was Doc, you know, standing along his side, saying hello to anybody that comes up to him, holding his cup of coffee, and then you know, and goes into the rink and he's standing by the glass. And I don't think he took his face away from the glass. I don't think he moved, followed the game as closely as he as he does an NHL game. He, I remember we were chatting before the game. He was asking me all kinds of questions about, you know, the local high school hockey scene, who's good, all these things. Uh, it was a surreal moment. I'm sitting there talking to Doc Emmerich at a local rink about high school hockey in North Jersey. That, that doesn't happen very often, if ever. And uh, he, he couldn't have been more ha- happier to be there. He couldn't be more happier to learn about it. And I know he was watching the game. And I remember, I vividly remember looking over at him because I always covered the game standing in the penalty, you know, between the bed and the scores box. And uh, I remember looking over at him and you know, focused on the game. I'm thinking to myself, is he like calling the game in his head? Is he broadcasting the game in his head? And who knows? He might have been doing that. But uh, he, I remember that story. And then, he brought it up on our podcast when I had when we had him on during the pause in the season. So he remembered it too, which tells you everything you need to know about that. And I invite everyone to go check out those episodes of NHL at the Ring podcast with Doc Emmerich specifically, and then Eddie Olchek, who was very emotional and rightfully so. I mean, they did yeah. hockey for a long time together. Uh, not to not to not to pry a little bit, but if you can give us a little bit of inside baseball, do you think it's going to be John Forslund? You know, it's a good question. I. I don't know. I mean, Forsen's done a lot of stuff for NBC. Uh, he's very good. Uh, he doesn't have the job with Carolina anymore, so he is open to do it. Um, so, I, I, I mean, Kenny Albert's another one that's done a lot of work with NBC hockey, but Kenny does also Fox Baseball, Fox Football, Rangers Radio. I mean, then there's some Knicks Radio and Knicks on TV. I mean, the man's got a thousand jobs. Um, if I had to place money on it right now, I would say it would probably be John Forsen's because he's available to do it and he's done a lot of work for NBC and he's really been in that number two, number three role with NBC, depending on what Kenny's availability is too. So it would make sense. And he's terrific. John Corson is terrific. I agree. And segueing, I guess, into what we're going to see in the new season. So something that's important for us here is not only when the NHL is going to start and you just had Bill Daly on your podcast, but there was also an announcement a couple of weeks ago from the AHL about starting February 5th. And that's important for us in Tucson because we will get ice for the kids once the AHL comes back. We're currently not skating in Tucson at all. So if, uh, what what information do you have regarding, and, and again, uh, you had a long talk with Bill Daly. So I guess I'll just ask you, what do you think will happen in terms of the start for both the AHL and the NHL? Well, the AHL announced the tentative start date of February 5th. So that, that's their tentative start date and start of their season, February 5th. So we're winding back a little bit. They're going to have to be in training camp, uh, you know, mid-January, um, if not early January, which, which, which actually would make a little bit of sense because the NHL is still trying to target a January 1st start date in and around that date. Um, maybe, you know, we give or take a week or so. Uh, Bill, that's what Bill Daly told us on our podcast last week. And you can like, so listen to that, the NHL at the right podcast. Um, so if the NHL is going to start around January 1st or anywhere on that date, rewind it back, you're going to have to have training camp start mid-December, uh, maybe a, and potentially a little bit earlier for the 17th that didn't return to play last season. They wanted a little extra time so as sort of a carrot for them because they didn't get back in. So then you could have AHL players 
in the NHL camp. And then when the NHL camp breaks for the start of the regular season, maybe that's when the AHL camp will start to open up or in and around, give or take a week or so, probably. And those players who didn't make the final roster could then go to their AHL camps. Um, quarantine rules being in effect wherever they may be, COVID testing being in effect for, you know, obvious, you know, all, all of that health, local health regulations and whatnot. So it would make sense. Um, you know, from a timing perspective, given given the whole the whole frame, time frame there, but February fifth is the tentative start date for the American Hockey League. January first still for the NHL, but we don't. There has been no official announcement from the National Hockey League. The AHL did issue an official announcement for, for February fifth, but they never said it was official. They just said it's a tentative start date. Do you foresee them playing in their home arenas? I bet they want to. Um, there's no question about it. I think both divisions want to. There's, you know, both leagues certainly want that to happen. It's not as safe of an approach if they do it in a hub city format instead. I don't mean like they did with the bubbles in the playoffs. That's too, they're not going to ask the players to do that. But a hub. Bill Daly talked about this on our podcast that the two options are playing in home arenas with or without fans, depending on local regulations, um, or have them play in hub cities, which a model being, you know, you take a city or two uh, from a division and you make that the hub city and teams fly in at different times to play a batch of games. And they, you know, maybe for a week or two, they leave and go home for a week, practice in their home, practice rings, be with their families, then go back and play a batch of games again. And you work your schedule from there. If you did it where they're playing in their home arenas, it's, a little bit more north to what we know as normalcy without fans, obviously, in most markets. Uh, kind of like what the NFL is doing, what Major League Baseball did. But, you know, you can't have it as controlled of an environment as you could if you had the hub cities. But there's also, there's economics that go into this. You know, building, you know, corporate sponsors or whatever. If the building's closed, they may lose money. So they want the building to be open. And, and that's why owners, I'm sure, would like their teams to be playing in their home buildings. Uh, so that's the give and take that they're trying to work through right now in his buildings, and that's what keeps us up at night right now is figuring out what they would do. But he, even he said, you know, if we went with that schedule model where everybody plays in their home building and we drop the puck tomorrow, I don't know that everybody could play in their home building because of locals, you know, because of state rate and health regulations, they may not be allowed to open. Uh, just simply because of that. So with COVID cases on the rise, especially. So that is something, time is of the essence. they got to figure this out. they got to have an announcement. Put something in place here soon. The players certainly have to know, especially if they're coming back for training camp in mid-December. Some of them are going to have to quarantine when they come back. So you rewind it back from there. You can early December. We're already at November 17th. So something's going to get done here pretty soon. Right. And, well, we, we certainly hope we get the AHL back in the building here. Uh, we Currently, we have only two high school teams going. We added a second high school team this year, and we're having to do everything in Chandler. And just to segue, I guess, into another topic I, I definitely wanted to go into with you was that I had your email from a handful of years ago in 2016. You did an article on the growth of hockey in Arizona and specifically the effect Austin Matthews had on it. And that was the first year of the Roadrunners down here. We had a program back then of about 50 to 60 kids, but we were just about to do our learn to play program for the NHL for the first time. We now ended last year with 
over 250 kids and you've had a new building spring up here in Mesa. There's uh, a new arena going in for ASU. I think they're still talk about building another big facility on the north side of Phoenix. Northern Arizona is putting a new facility in here. Uh, I still say it's an, a when, not if we get a building down here in Tucson. But talk a little bit about what your thought process was. I know you have your University of Arizona ties about wanting to do that article. And then a little bit about the effect that you've seen post-Austin Matthews, almost what people talk about with Wayne Gretzky having that kind of effect on the Southern California hockey market. Well, yes. No, I mean, I think it would actually be a bigger effect if Austin was playing in Arizona. Like, you know, Gretzky did play, you know, in, in the, 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 the boom of Southern California was because Gretzky went to the Kings to play. Um, if Austin was playing for the, the Coyotes, it, it would probably even have a bigger effect. Um, there's no question about it. But the hook for that story, and I do remember it vividly, was that story ran about two weeks before Austin Matthews and the Leafs went to Arizona to play the Coyotes for his first game against the Coyotes. It was not his first game against the Coyotes, but it was his first game uh, in Arizona. And, you know, being a number one pick, a kid from Scottsdale, how unique that was, and now he gets an opportunity to go home and play um, – and obviously a, a, a proud, you know, resident stuff that he still lives there in the off season and does all that stuff. Um, that was the hook. So I was able to do my research, got in touch with you and with so many others, learned so much about how the growth of hockey was at that point. And then I went out there um, a couple of days in advance and, and, you know, talked to a bunch of people, went to the old rink that Austin was playing, you know, played at, talked to his old coach, um, talked to a guy who was his skills coach and worked with him a lot at a skating camp and whatnot. And, um, you really, you know, at the time, and this is you know, now almost four years ago, uh, there was that buzz of hockey in Arizona because of Austin Matthews, and, and you could feel it growing and growing. So it's great to hear that it's grown even more. Uh, and I think a successful NHL team will, you know, will even make it that much bigger. And right now, the Coyotes have kind of been a middling team, rebuild. Yeah, they got in last year. They were better, but not that great. And now they're back into a rebuild. They had some controversy, uh, another turnover in ownership and, and management and whatnot. So if they can get it set to where they can build it the right way and get some I don't, I, when I say homegrown talented star, I don't mean like an Austin Matthews or from Scottsdale. I mean somebody that they draft that they can develop and, and, and really focus and, and build the whole thing around. That, with the growth of hockey in Tucson, the growth of hockey in Flagstaff area, that will spread the way Phoenix is spreading and it will make it even bigger. And, and I think that's the next step here. And also the next step is to move out of the arena that we're in back to the East Valley because. You know, you, you, you got to be in a place where most of your fans are and where you, you're in a concentrated area. Um, so I think that's a key thing for them as well. But it, Austin being from Scottsdale and being as successful as he has been in the National Hockey League so far and proudly from Scottsdale has been such a big thing. It's had to have had such a huge impact um, in the state, in hockey in Arizona. And uh, I think it's very important 
that you get somebody like that um, to to uh, to do that because without it, you know, you're kind of middling around and you're still trying to find your way. Uh, unless you have a, 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 a team like the Tampa Bay Lightning, for instance, and an owner like Jeff Vinnick who pours a ton of money into the area and the Lightning are good and they got Savantos, Ed Kucherov, Point, Vasilevsky. Kevin's don't have that just yet. So they, that's the step that they need to take. So you build an even bigger fan base. And when you build an even bigger fan base, you're going to get more players. But having Austin Matthews is a huge part of it. No, I agree. And you'll see him in the summer at Ice 10 Scottsdale. And yeah. people talk about seeing him. And you should. And that's great. And, that, and that, that shows it. And you've got kids who are 10 years old have an Austin Matthews poster on their wall. And they say to themselves, hey, he's, he's my neighbor. You know what I mean? Like, I just saw that guy skating around at the ice stand. If he can do it, why can't I? And, and then maybe their friends go, hey, maybe we'll try to join you. And, and you get more players that way. I agree. And since you brought him up, let's talk about the Tampa Bay Lightning and a little bit of, uh, to use a baseball term, I know you're a baseball guy too, a little bit of hot stove here. Yeah. Tampa Bay, it seems like no one's in a rush to do them any favors by taking any cap away from them. And they still have three pretty high-profile RFAs with basically no cap space left. Yeah, something's going to have to get there. They already waived Tyler Johnson. Uh, nobody picked him up, but now that gives them the ability to send him down and save a little bit of cap there. But I, I think once, I honestly do think that once we get a start date, once we get a plan in place and teams know uh, what's going on, that the business will pick back up. But the cap is... Is it is it is it crunch? It, it, the cap crunch is, is is real this year. It's real for far more teams than it normally is. Simply being because it didn't go up. Everybody expected it or was planning for it to go up. Then March comes, the global pandemic hits, the game gets shut down, fans aren't allowed in the building, the economics of the game take a major hit, and and, and the cap doesn't go up, uh, and it stays stagnant at eighty one point five million, and now. Teams like the Lightning who spend to the cap to win, and you don't want to blame them for ever doing that because it works. They did it, obviously. They now have to face the crunch. And why would anybody be standing here giving them a helping hand if, you know, if they don't have to, especially if there's fewer teams that are even able to do it right now because the cap crunch is real. But I do think it'll, you know, Julian Breesbrough is an excellent general manager. I think he'll find his way to wiggle around it. Uh, but something's going to have to give there. They're going to take a hit. They're going to lose somebody. It won't be as good as it was last year. It just, it just simply can't be because of the cap crunch. So Tyler Johnson's the natural to me uh, to be the guy that goes because he's at about five million. Uh, you got to sign Sergeyev. You got to sign Chernak. You know, um, so there's some guys there that need to get signed because they're so important to the team. Tyler Johnson has become more of an ancillary player for them, whereas Sergeyev and Chernak are more, you know, focal points. And Anthony Sorelli as well. Sorelli, too, yeah, he's the other one I forgot about him. Yeah, Sorelli is so important because, you know, you got Stamkos and you got Point down the middle, but Anthony Sorelli is the one that takes so many of the defensive zone faceoffs, uh, so, 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 so many penalty killing minutes that he needs up, and he can still be such an effective offensive player playing within their system. He's only getting better, and uh, he's the type of guy that makes the team go from being a good team to a standing cup champion. Because I thought he had great playoffs, and you need players like that, especially if you have point and stand close, and then you have Sorelli. Sorelli becomes like a bonus, except the bonus is making all the little plays happen. 
Uh, I think he's a future self-control player. I, I mean, I, full disclosure, I'm a Sabres fan here. I would like to see an offer sheet or some kind of trade offer for Sorelli. And again, I, so I guess to coagulate the question a little better, do you think it's more of a matter of the economics due to COVID because that has hindered Tampa's ability to create cap space? Or do you think it's teams saying we are not going to help this team? Oh, I think it's the economics due to COVID because it's not a matter of we are not going to help this team. It, it, they're not teams that make a trade. They're not going to look to say, "Oh, we can help you," uh, and that's why we're going to do it. No, they would do it because they can help themselves. Um, Tyler Johnson, if you get a trade, if you acquire Tyler Johnson, he could fit into your middle six forward group um, and, and be a very effective player for you. Um, there's no question about that. And plus, you have to think there's also going to be the, the expansion draft, and, and, and you have to protect certain guys and, and you know, expose certain guys. Maybe there's a guy you don't want to expose, but you are kind of caught in a rut here. You acquire Tyler Johnson, maybe he's the one that you expose and you're able to protect certain, you know, that other certain player. So there, there, there is all of that that goes into it. But, but it's, it's the, the effect of the salary cap. Um, that has had the impact on the market. There's no question about it. Remember, the, the cap is supposed to go up to anywhere between 84 and $88 million. Instead, it's 81.5. That extra little bit makes a huge difference to teams that are at or near the ceiling of the salary cap. Even that, that extra little amount of money, it, because of being a hard cap, it, it is, is the difference between, you know, Feeling the roster you want to field and, and you know having to give something out that you don't want to give up. And there's been a lot of movement in this offseason. You just had Brandon Sod on the podcast. I, I I don't like to use the terms overrated, underrated, because Brandon Sod's a great player. And they basically got him as a cap dump because of the Chicago situation. But is that kind of somewhat the best under the radar move for a team like the Avalanche? That was a terrific look. When Joe Sackley called, don't answer the call if you're another GM. Because he's going to, he's he's going to get you, you know. I mean, uh, he he has made some some terrific moves, like acquiring Devon Taves uh, from the Islanders. I really like Devon Taves. He's a 26 year old left handed defenseman, fits right in there with Colorado State. Move the puck, um, you know. I mean, now now you look at the left side of their D with Taves, Sam Gerrard, and Ryan Graves, and the right side with with Gail McCarr and Eric Johnson and, you know, tossing and pull there probably too, or maybe some of those lefties moves to the right, some pulls, pull plays the left, who knows, but their D looks so much better now with the Montes and it's already good. And the forward group, the yeah, Adrian saw uh, a, a terrific move, one year left on his deal. If it works out, you try to re-sign him. If it doesn't work out, you still, I mean, you're better off for having Brandon Saad for a year. He's played with star players before Taves came. He can play with the McKinnon. He can play with Nazem Kadri. Uh, he can play up and down your lineup because um, he doesn't change his game the way he does play. He fits into the style of play. He can skate. He's quick in that sense. And he's won before. He's got two Stanley Cup championship rings, and that's what the Avalanche want to get. Uh, and I think they're primed to get it. I think, I, I think they're the Stanley Cup favorite right now because of the team they have. 
Well, and my next question is going to be, given that Tampa Bay still has some maneuvering to do, whenever the season starts, whether it's January 1st or otherwise, is Colorado the best roster in the league up and down? Well, the only reason I don't say yes is because I don't know yet if Grubauer can handle it. So Grubauer, can he stay healthy? Um, and can he be the number one goalie throughout the playoffs? I mean, Philip Grubauer, you got to remember, had an opportunity with Washington when Braden Holpe was still there and got pulled and Holpe went in and then the rest is history. They go and win the Stanley Cup. He wasn't ready at the time. Last season, he was better off, you know, with the with the Avs and then he gets hurt in the stadium series game. And then he comes back from the league, you know, when the season restarts and then he got hurt, pulled his groin game one against Dallas in the second round. But you've got it, you know, to be a goaltender, you know, these teams in some ways, go as far as the goalie will take them. And you need a goalie that's going to be able to play and stay healthy. And that's one thing that Grubauer obviously had an issue with last season. So there's still question marks there. So, I mean, if you want to tell me that the Lightning are going to be able to sign Sergeyev and Chernak and Sorelli, and even if they have to give up a Tyler Johnson or Riyadi Gord uh, or an Alex Killorn, I'm still going Lightning. Um, as, as having the best roster because their goaltending is terrific. Uh, Andre Vasilevsky is a sure thing. He really is. Every night, you know exactly what you're going to get from Andre Vasilevsky. He might, might have a bad game here or there, but for the most part, the consistency is there. You know exactly what you're going to get. You know, for the most part, he's going to be ready to go, and that makes up all the difference in the world. I mean, you look at the, some of the coaches last year that got fired, right? John Hines, before he got the job in Nashville, he got fired by the Devils. Peter Laviolette, you know, got fired by, by the Predators. Uh, Bruce Boudreaux, right? Got fired by the Wild. What's the, what's the one common link? Bad goaltending. If you don't, you know, bad goaltending is a coach killer and it's a team killer. And not saying the Avalanche are bad goaltending. I do believe in Rubar. I think he can do it. Uh, he's just going to show it, whereas the other guy has shown it. And I think with the, the parity being what it is in the NHL, the goaltending is the biggest difference because there are so many good rosters. And is this the most parity you've ever seen? I'll ask you first in the NHL in your time covering it, but as someone who's a fan of all sports, really in any sport we've seen over the last half century. I, you know what it is? I, it's the most good parity that I can recall seeing. Um, you know, I think to the NFL, I'm a Giants fan, right? In the NFC East, there's parity in the NFC East, but no, like the Giants might be the best team in the division, and they're three and seven. And and frankly, that's just not good enough, right? They're just still learning how to win. But you have in the NHLs, you've got, I would say, like we'll just look at last season, right? I mean, other than San Jose, LA, Anaheim, Detroit, Ottawa, New Jersey. I won't even throw Buffalo in that mix. And and even, let's take... I, I, appreciate, I appreciate that, as a Sabre yeah. fan. I'm glad to hear they're a little let's further along. Jersey out of it. Yeah, here you go. Let's take New Jersey out of it, because in the second half, they were way better than they were in the first half. But they got better goaltending than Kenzie Blackwood. Do you throw those teams out? There's 27, 26 teams that believe that they have a legitimate chance to win, make the playoffs, and go on a run. And we saw it last year. We saw Montreal, which had a 500 points percentage, would not have made the playoffs. Probably had no business being there, right? And, and would not have been in there, but weren't bad. And they have good goaltending with Carey Price. Um, we saw them 
get in, get back in because the team, the league allowed 12 teams in each conference. And then they went and beat the Pittsburgh Penguins in the, the Stanley qualifiers. Same with the Chicago Blackhawks. They were a little slightly better than Montreal. Would not have been a playoff team. They get in. They beat Connor McDavid, Leon Drysaddle, and the Edmonton Oilers in the Cup qualifiers. I mean, there's parity. There it is right there. I mean, anybody can beat anybody. And Gary Benton talks about it a lot. It's right. If, if there's the most parity of any sport, if you see you see the most parity of any sport, you see it in the NHL. And that's why it's very hard to repeat. That's why what the Pittsburgh Penguins did in 2017 after winning in 2016 was incredible because it's so hard to repeat. Look at Washington. They won in 2018, losing the first round last year, uh, losing the first round in 2019, losing the first round in 2020. St. Louis not, wins in 2019. They lose to Vancouver in the first round, you know, the following year after a good regular season. But it's very hard to repeat in the NHL. It's very hard to win in the NHL. And we talk about teams that feel like they're right there. They're on the cusp, like Columbus, Carolina, uh, are two that immediately come to mind. Uh, Vancouver, Calgary uh, in the West, you know, they come to mind. There's no guarantees that they'll even be in the playoffs because they, they, they may be one or two points in or out. That's just the way they are. So much. There's a lot of parity, and there's a lot of bubble teams. Is Pittsburgh's window closed if Latang can't get back to the form that we saw when they won back-to-back cups? Uh, they're not closed as long as they have Crosby and Walken. I think they got shot. Um, it's not the same team. Uh, Latang has to be, you know, their best defenseman. There's no question about it. But I really liked what I saw from a guy like John Marino last year. I think Brian Dumoulin is excellent. Um, and they have a general manager who's not shy to make moves, not shy to shake things up, and, and, and has always found a way to make moves, you know, in the middle of the season if need be to shake things up. And I think their coach is excellent too. I don't think Mike Sullivan's on touch at all. I think he's a very good coach. And they still have Crosby and Malkin. And as long as they have Crosby and Malkin playing as well as those guys have played, the Pittsburgh Penguins are going to have a chance. So I, I cannot say that their windows closed. But I will say that there's other teams that have caught up if not past them. Tampa Bay has caught up and past them. Uh, Philadelphia's come a bit close. Um, you know, no question about it. You know, then you got other teams and you know, and other teams joining the, fly- the Flyers in the Metro, like Carolina and the Islanders and the Rangers are coming now too. So it's not like it's the Penguins and the Capitals and everybody else. It's the Penguins and the Capitals and the Flyers and the Islanders and the Hurricanes and the Rangers. And the, I mean, there, there's a lot there in the Metropolitan Division. So it makes it hard. It's, the the Penguins is being as good as they are. I don't think they're this close. They're not guaranteed to be in the playoffs. No chance. And that's for some of our Penguins fans that we have, including my mother, who's very much a diehard Penguins fan. I think they're a playoff team, but they're not. I wouldn't say they're a lot. You know what I mean? So looking on paper right now for next season, I would. I, I think people would say Washington, oh yeah, Pittsburgh, maybe, Carolina, Philadelphia, the Islanders, the Rangers. You know, I mean, there's so many teams right now that look at it and say, we're a playoff team, and they can only have so many spots. And when you look at the bracket from the playoffs, Washington, Carolina, Columbus, St. Louis, maybe even Calgary, now that they have Jacob Markstrom, I mean, these are teams that when they look up and down their roster, they got to say, we have a good a chance as any as anybody else to win the Stanley Cup. Well, yeah. I mean, there's no question. You look at the brackets this past year. I mean, I still think 
got there, but you know, Tyler Sagan being out for an extended period will hurt them. I like Vancouver a lot. Um, I think you got to give Calgary a, a chance with Markstrom. Um, I like, I got to see more from guys like Johnny Gaudreau and Sean Monahan. St. Louis is still very much a realistic contender. There's no question about that. There's a lot, you know, like there's, there's a lot there. There, there. there really is. And where do you fit in a team like Edmonton? You know, I mean, they have maybe the two best players in the league, you know, arguably. Uh, and, you know, where do they fit in to the whole thing? I still think that they're, you know, missing pieces, but, you know, they, they obviously have to be looked at as a, as a serious threat with McDavid and Dreisaitl. So, that's what I mean by Paris. You know, I mean, Vegas was really good and got better without the tarantula. Um, you know, Colorado was really good and got better with Brandon Saad and, and Devontae's. Um, you know, the St. Louis was good and maybe it got a little worse without losing Alex Petrangelo, but they did sign Tory Creek. You know, Vancouver was on, is a team on the rise. They lost March from, because they got healthy. And they still obviously saw what we got from, you know, with Dad and Thatcher Dunkley too. So, I mean, Calgary was and, middling, but they got better than gold. So, I mean, there's, a, there's so much parity there. And Nate Schmidt gets picked up by Vancouver yeah. for a third rounder. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, because Vegas needed a dump him to get Petrangelo. And Columbus had a lot of good defensemen too. I mean, Ryan Murray, when healthy, is still a top four guy. He, he gets shipped off for I think for a fifth round pick. Yeah, Ryan Murray was healthy has been an issue, but now he's with the New Jersey Devils, and they're hoping he's going to be re you know reinvigorated or whatever it is, and he can stay healthy and he can be a guy for them. That's going to, you know, be an impact player because when healthy, he can be. There's no question about it. Yeah, I mean, but that's part of the salary cap too. I mean, you're talking about Nate Schmidt, right? So Vegas wanted to go out and sign Alex Petrangelo. Nate Schmidt's the casualty of that. Does that work in the room for Vegas? That's going to be the question. That's not because Alex Petrangelo is going to cause ripple effect here and be a bad guy. No, he's an excellent person. He's a, he, he he'll be fine in the locker room. But Nate Schmidt was beloved and he fit. In that room, and he was part of that room. He was part of the fabric of that room, uh, and now he's not there. So that takes an element away. So how did that impact the Vegas Golden Knights do on the ice? I, I don't know. I mean, on paper, talent-wise, Petrangelo is a better defenseman than Nature. But sometimes that doesn't always play the right way uh, for a team when you're talking about cohesiveness, chemistry, all that stuff. I mean, the Metropolitan Division was loaded. Probably got a little more loaded. Considering you have teams like the Rangers get Lafreniere, Carolina, you saw jump out of Sveshnikov. They still have a good young decor that's getting better. Philadelphia, a young team that's starting to find its stride. New Jersey was much better under Blackwood and had some good pickups. And then you look at the Atlantic as well. Montreal, Buffalo, Ottawa all got markedly better. I think Detroit still got a couple of years left, but it seems like maybe the rich got richer a little bit in the West. But as far as the East goes, I mean, you can really pick any four teams out of a division and say, just put them at random and say, I wouldn't be surprised if the division standings look this way. Right. Well, it's very true. Boston is still a serious contender in Atlantic, but they're not going to be as, Tory Krug is a big loss for them. You know, that that's a significant loss for them. That They're going to have to have somebody make up those minutes and make up that, that time that he plays and, and Marchand's going to have surgery coming off the surgery. Pastor Mac's going to be coming off the surgery. We don't know how they're going to come off. So Tampa Bay, 
we've already talked about their cap issues, so they, you have to think they take somewhat of a hit. Um, Toronto is a good good team, but it, you know, I mean, they're a team that still has struggled to take that next step. Are they going to be able to do it? I'm of the belief that whenever the Toronto Maple Leafs are able to take the next step, they're going to go on a run. But when is that going to happen? Um, Florida, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to buy them, but I'm, I'm struggling to buy them a little bit. But they've changed the, they've, they've moved some pieces out there. They've changed some, play, you know, changed the general manager. They've changed some pieces. Got a little tough to play against with some of their moves. But you know, are they going to be taking a hit? I think they might. Montreal's going to get better. I think Buffalo is going to be improved. I don't think Buffalo is going to be a playoff team, but I think Buffalo is going to be a threat again. And Taylor Hall makes them that. Ottawa is going to be a better team. They signed a lot of players. They're still young. They'll be better. They're not ready yet, but they'll be a better team. Detroit's not close yet. And then you look at the, the Metro, you know, Washington's still very much right there. you got to give it to them. They're still very much right there. Philadelphia is a team that's going to be right there, too. Good team, solid all the way through. Pittsburgh's still a good team, solid through. Carolina plays their style of game, very hard to beat. Still have to wonder about the goaltending. The Islanders play the defensive style. They're always going to be in the mix. Columbus, similarly. The Rangers are a wild card for me because they can take a huge step or a small step. A huge step means they're a playoff team. A small step is still a good thing for the Rangers, but it means they're not a playoff team. They're doing it the right way, but they're still going to be a pace for them. I still think they might be a year away. And then the Devils are, are going to be better, and their goaltending is going to be better with Blackwood and Crawford than it was with Blackwood, Blackwood and Schneider. And that will make them a better team. Maybe Russ, the new coach there, they got some players. I'm curious to see how Jack Hughes does in, in year number two, especially with all this time off, uh, to train and learn more about the game and, and his body. Um, so they'll be better, but I think you know, some, you know they, not every one of these teams can win every night. So somebody's going to pick it. And let's close by talking a little bit about the Arizona Coyotes and not not a, a very tumultuous offseason, to say the least, but still I want to say almost like a team like Columbus. They have a culture there. They have elite goaltending, especially now that Ronta is still on the roster as of today, and he's had a lot of time to try and get healthy before next season. And we all know his numbers are really good when healthy. Darcy Kemper, probably um, as good as any goalie in the league last year. I mean, Hellebuck was really good as well but you know you lose Hall but at the same time you make some small moves there's still really good depth on D Johan Larson's a guy who comes in for kind of Carl Soderberg and and is he kind of a younger version and I again I say that as a Buffalo fan as a guy who watched Johan Larson a lot but you know they have contributions from all four lines they have good goaltending they have depth on D they're one of those hard teams to play against every night they are a hard team to play against and you're right, their goaltending will keep them in games. As long as both those guys are healthy, they're going to be good. Uh, they didn't trade Oliver Eckman Larson. They weren't going to be forced into trading Oliver Eckman Larson. Um, but, you know, I mean, eventually you got to wonder if, if they end up going in a rebuilding mode that the 29, almost 30 year old defenseman make an 8.25 fit. Um, we'll see. But he's he's there and he's excellent. Uh, their defense is strong. I mean, I thought we had Bill Armstrong on our podcast not long ago. And we talked about this. He likes the D. He likes the goaltending. What they don't have is that guy down the middle who scares the heck out of you. You know, um, I like Schmaltz. I like Derek Stepan. Um, you know, Barrett Hayden could be an interesting player for them. Um, they don't have that elite center. Um, 
Joe Castle is never going to be a guy that carries it. He's going to need help. And we saw last year he didn't get it. He had a good year. But if you can get Phil Castle back to being a goal scorer that he was, if you can get, you know, prorated 20 goals out of Phil Castle, depending on how many games they play, that would be big. Clayton Keller's got to take that next step. He has to take that next jump to becoming an elite player in the NHL for them, an elite scorer in the NHL for them to take that step. Um, so they, they got good players, but they're missing that guy that scares the heck out of you. And it's the one thing that they don't have. Um, but their goaltending and their defense are going to keep them in games, and that's the way they're going to coach it. So I still expect that the Coyotes is a lot of those scoring two to one, three to two type games. Dan Rosen, I really appreciate your time today. And, you know, uh, hopefully we get to do this again. Come down and visit U of A when things get back cooking again. We'll go to a basketball game. I live right near campus. Maybe we'll try and catch a roadrunner game as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm a Buffalo guy. I said it. So maybe you and I can one day have a Dominic Koshik versus Martin Broder discussion on the pod. You got it. Oh, this is fine. Right here, we'll do it. All right, that's Dan Rosen. He's a senior writer at NHL.com, host of the NHL at the Rink podcast, frequent contributor to the NHL Network, proud Wildcat, as we said at the outset. And this is episode 10 of the Tucson Hockey Podcast, brought to you by Altitude Home Loans. Visit Altitude Home Loans or dannyplatner.com for any mortgage or refinancing needs.